pray can't get you off of mine so I came to say thank you Lord just for loving me and many times I do forget that every need that you've met I thank you Lord cause I know you're showing me as you are there when I'm down and out holding me you love is so amazing yeah Lord change me here I am with all I have I raise my hands to worship you I want to say I thank you oh thank you for everything for who you are you cover me touch my heart I want to say thank you I could have died in my sin but you saved me didn't have any hope at all and gave me peace divine the strength to carry on I should have been the one to pay but instead you took my place amazing grace it's more than just a song even though i don't deserve your love for me you looked beyond the flows you showed me mercy here i am with all i have raise my hands to worship you now I want to say thank you oh thank you for everything for who you are you cover me you touch my heart I want to say thank you I want to say thank you for the sun every day want to want to say Thank you for the rain. Him this morning. 
And I want to say thank you And I want to say thank you Good morning. Those of you who have been with us, you know we've been going through the Bible chronologically from Genesis, but we have to deviate now. We've hit the end, pretty much, of the Old Testament timeline, but we didn't hit every book in the Old Testament. So now what I want to do is go back and look at some of the books that fit in chronologically that we didn't look at, the prophets, basically. Um, but before we jump in, I've got this really cool chart I found online that I want to share with you, and hopefully you can see it. It says the perfect symmetry of the 39 books of the Old Testament. It says we've got 17 books of history and 17 books of prophecy. And they're broken up five books of law, 12 books of history, five books of the major prophets, 12 books of the major, minor prophets. And then in between are five books of poetry. And then it's divided by nine and three on each side through the Babylonian exile. Just thought it was a really cool chart to show how it lays out. Almost as if, as if there was a divine plan behind it. <laughs> so, historically, where are we? There's the next chart. I passed these out to you when we started our series. Uh, if you don't have one of these with you, just contact the office. We will get you one. This is one of these charts you can keep for the rest of your life to help you understand how the Bible all lays out historically. But you notice, right here is where a whole bevy of prophets fit in. And we were just going through the history here. So now we're going to go back and look at these prophets. And today we're going to look at Jonah. You can see he ministered during the days of Jeroboam, who was the king of the north. And the scripture will tell us who he ministered, who was king of the south when he ministered as well. So we're going to look at the prophet Jonah, one of the most famous in the Bible because his story is so cool. He's mentioned three times in the Bible. One in Kings. Then Jonah, I count that as one, and then in the New Testament. So we're going to just look at the three times he's mentioned in the Bible and see what the Bible has to show us about him. All righty, 2 Kings chapter 14. Here's what it says about Jonah. First place he's mentioned. In the fifteenth uh, year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, became king in Samaria. Samaria is Israel, the northern kingdom. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So Jonah is first mentioned in Kings as the guy who prophesied about Jeroboam's kingdom expanding. And that's all it says about him. He's not introduced, oh yeah, you all know about Jonah. It's assumed you know Jonah. So I imagine when this was written, he was already famous. And then, of course, we have his book called Jonah. So it doesn't take too much of a leap to know that he was the prophet that ministered to Jeroboam. It says it, he wrote about him, he spoke about him, so obviously he ministered to him. Now, if you don't remember Jeroboam too, um, maybe if I remind you about that lesson, that'll give you an idea of the times of Jonah, what was going on. Jeroboam was said to be a very wicked king. But Israel had been under judgment for so long, God decided to extend them some peace and grace anyway, for no good reason other than the fact that he's a loving God. So despite Jeroboam being a wicked king and Israel worshiping idols, God chose to bless them at that time. Wicked kingdom, 
God blessing. This was the lesson where I basically taught you how to treat mean people. And I told you, God treats mean people well. We should treat mean people well, too. And I played that clip from Fireproof. Remember that? Because he was struggling with how to deal with his wife. And it was real frustrating to him because he would do all these good things, but she wouldn't reciprocate. That was the lesson of Jeroboam. We are to bless people when they sin against us, not curse them. In light of that, Jesus said, be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. I know Jonah had to practice that because he was living in a wicked kingdom with a wicked king, and he had to be as wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. And I'm thinking Jonah was the dove for Jeroboam. He was that voice of reason and sanity during a wicked kingdom. And it just so happens to be that the word dove in Hebrew is Jonah. That's what his name means. So that's the first place Jonah is mentioned in the Bible. Second place is the book that bears his name, the book of Jonah. The world power in the region in those days were the Assyrians. Their capital was Nineveh. Okay? Today, that would be Iran. And just like the Iranians today, the government supports terrorism, and we don't like their government very much. Back in those days, they supported terrorism, and nobody liked their government very much. But back in those days, they were much worse. They were brutal. How brutal, Steve? Well, they invented a form of impaling to keep people impaled on a stake for days slowly, miserably dying to just extend their torture. They flayed people. They heaped up heads and put thrones on them. I mean, these people were gross. If they took you captive, they'd put a hook in your lip or your nose and drag you back to Assyria, hooked. Strings of people on hook, like your fish or something. They were just brutal, barbaric, and the people who did not submit to them, like Israel, did not like them. That was the Assyrian Empire. They were in control of the region at the time. So God told Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them I'm going to destroy them in 40 days. You'd think Jonah would be like, yeah, all right, go get them, God. So what's Jonah do? To go to Nineveh, you've got to travel northeast. So Jonah flees west, hops in a boat, and he leaves. He doesn't want to carry the message. Why? Well, he doesn't want to carry the message because he's scared to death that they might actually listen to him and repent. And if they do, then God will forgive the Ninevites and spare them. And the last thing Jonah wants is for them to be spared. You say, well, I get it. They were evil. Yeah, 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 yeah. But Israel was evil too, remember? they were in the midst of experiencing God's grace. Despite their evil, God was blessing them. Jonah was a recipient of that grace. Now God says, go bring that grace to another country. And Jonah says, uh-uh, I'm out of here. That's kind of hypocritical, dude. God's given you grace, extend it to somebody else. Freely you have received, freely give. God loves us, we should love one another. Not because they deserve it, but because we treat them the way God treats us. That's what he was having Jonah do, and Jonah had nothing to do with it. He said, I'm out of here. I'm sure in Jonah's mind, had he thought of it, and I'm not saying he did, somebody would have said, hey, your, your nation's evil too. And Jonah would have said, yeah, but theirs is much worse. And isn't that what we do? 
we compare ourselves with those who are worse, and we look at ourselves and think we're good. We do it all the time. You can't help but do it. It's like a human condition. And then we judge them as bad and ourselves as good. Well, that's great if you happen to be the standard for righteousness in the universe. If you're the standard, you will always look good. But what if you're not the standard? What if Jesus is the standard for good in the universe? So, here's Jesus. I better reverse the scale. Here's Jesus, and the higher you go, the worse you are. So here's Jesus. Here's Nineveh. And here's Israel. And Nineveh looks really bad. From Jesus' perspective, they're all messed up. So we look at people who do bad things, and they're like, really bad. Uh-huh, and we're right up here, thinking we're doing great. I'm not saying you're a bunch of evil, bad people in the sense of comparing ourselves with one another. But God is the standard. And if Jesus is the standard, honestly, we're not even on the scale. If it wasn't for his grace, we'd all be lost. But because of his grace, he brings us right up onto that scale, even with him. And what he wants to do is put everybody there. And Jonah said, nope, they're not going. Oh, really? Judge God, Jonah. And then we do the same thing, because right now I'd like nothing more than to see an atomic bomb dropped on Iran. You know, I learned a crazy thing when I went to Israel, speaking to an Israeli guy who really knows politics. He says, you know what? The, the Iranians like Israelis. And Israelis have no problem with the Iranians. It's just the government. Most of the people in Iran are decent folk. But the, go the government's whack. You know, day to day in Israel, Jews and Palestinians work side by side. They frequent each other's businesses, their neighbors, their friends. But the leaders are whack. And they, I'm not saying the people are innocent, because when they say go grab a stone and stone somebody, they should say no. They're, they're crazy too, but it's always the leadership that seems to be leading everybody astray. All right, so God tells Jonah, go to the wicked Assyrians and tell them they're going to be destroyed. And Jonah says, later, gets in a boat and runs off to Tarshish. He just gets, he's on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. He wants to go to the western end of the Mediterranean Sea. He's going to get as far away from Nineveh as he can get. Because obviously, you can foil God's plan by getting in a boat. So if you ever wanted to know how to undo God's plan, not a problem, just get in a boat. That'll do it for you. Obviously, he was not thinking. He was reacting stupid, but he wasn't thinking. So he gets in a boat, and God says, really? That's going to work? So God throws a storm at the boat, and the boat starts going so much so that they think they're going to sink. Horrible storm. So the mariners, they start, I don't know, throwing dice or something to try to pick which God's angry at who. And they figure out it's Jonah. And Jonah, in the meantime, sleeping in the boat that's going like this. And they go, wake him up. Pray to your God. Something's going wrong. He goes, oh, I know it's going wrong. It is my fault. What do you mean? Well, I'm, I'm Jewish and my God's the God of Israel. Oh, great. What did you do to take him off? Well, he sent me on a mission and I refused. Well, what do we do to please him to stop the storm? Not a problem. Throw me in the ocean. You'll be fine. Now I'm thinking, 
Jonah, is, is he selfless? Is he a good guy? Just willing to sacrifice his life to save all these pagans on the ship? Maybe. Or maybe Jonah says, well, if getting in a boat ain't going to get me out of God's will, maybe killing me will. I'd rather die than go preach to the Assyrians. You know, looking at the rest of the book, I'm leaning towards that perspective. I don't know. I don't know what, it, what was going on in his mind, but he said, hey, you want to live? Throw me in the ocean. You'll be fine. And I'm sure they looked at him like this. No! They started rowing, trying to get back to shore. It didn't work. It got worse. So, let me read you the story from here. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he said, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord. This is significant. You see how it says Lord is all capitalized? This is God's name. When it's put into English with all capitals, it's not just generic Lord, it's his name. So at this point, they know God's name. The, the significance of that is there's an, a personal awareness of the God of Israel right now. Not just some generic deity that they're praying to, okay? They cried to Jehovah, Adonai, the Lord, and they said, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, his name, you have done as you have pleased. It's not our fault. We don't want to do this. We were going to row him back to shore, but obviously you're not going to let us do that. So we'll throw him in, but we really don't want to. Please don't blame us for killing the guy. This is all on you. So they picked him up and they pitched him in the sea. They took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Can you? We're not seafaring folk. We live in a desert. We're all beach, no water. But if you've ever been on a boat or ever seen a movie, storms don't stop like that. I mean, the whole ocean is heaving and swirling, and the ship's ready to sink. They threw the man in the drink, and boom, it calmed down. These guys freaked out. They finally met God, a real God, one that actually does cool and amazing, impossible things. And they were overwhelmed, and they offered a sacrifice to him, and they worshipped him on the spot. Now, let me give you a Jewish perspective of this story. Jonah is the Jewish guy. Everybody else in the story is not. Who's looking good at this point of the story? Everybody but Jonah. Jonah's disobedient from God, runs away from him, runs into a bunch of idol worshipers who try to save his life, fail, and then worship God. And what's Jonah doing? Nothing. Nothing good at all. So we got a bunch of pagan mariners who are looking real good, and the Jewish prophet looking like an idiot. He thinks he's going to run from God by taking a boat ride, and God decides to give him a submarine ride instead. Because you know what happens next. The Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. There are some people that don't believe this story. 
come on, do you really expect me to believe that a man could be eaten by a fish? Any surfers in here? Yeah, a couple afraid to raise their hands, desert people. <laughs> I used to live by the ocean, and there are these things called sharks. They bite, they eat people. And the bigger they are, the more of you they can eat. People do get eaten by fish all the time. Oh, but come on, you really expect me to think, yeah, but that's in pieces, Steve. You really expect me to think a fish would swallow a man? By all means, don't believe it. The God of the universe created everything by just saying, be there. But he couldn't make a big enough fish to swallow a man. Impossible. To me, it's, this story is not hard to believe at all compared to the rest of the Bible. This is an easy one. But let me add a little more data. Throw up that picture for me. That's a fish. That is known as a whale shark. It's not a whale. It's just so stinking big they call it a whale shark. See the size of that man? Think that shark could swallow that man whole? Without even burping. <laughs> the biggest whale shark ever caught alive was 21 feet long, and it was caught in the Mediterranean Ocean. Guess where that is? Where Jonah got swallowed by the fish. Oh, and by the way, 21 feet is about half the size they grow. They grow over 40 feet. Let's look at the next picture. This bad boy was caught in the Arabian Ocean, and he's 40 feet. What do they got? Two cranes holding up this multi-ton fish? Now, I've got a smaller one just to show you the, the size of their mouth. Let's look at the next picture. Notice most sharks, their mouth is under their nose. This whole face just opens up. And even this small one could swallow that diver right there. So I've got no problem thinking about Jonah being swallowed by a fish without even having to divert to God making a miraculous new fish just to swallow the man. It wasn't even necessary. All he needed was a hungry whale shark. <laughs> Jonah was in there for three days and three nights. That's where people have the problem. How could you possibly survive inside a fish for three days and three nights? I don't know. But let me read to you more of the story. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. From the depths of the grave. In Hebrew, the grave there is Sheol. Sheol is better translated, not grave, but the place of the dead. I'm not making this up. This is the solid translation. Look in any Bible dictionary or lexicon. Sheol is where dead people go. Jonah said he cried out to God from the place where dead people go. So, was he dead or is this a metaphor? Those are your two options. He was in the middle of a fish, maybe he felt dead and buried, or maybe he was in that fish and he died. From the depths of the grave, from the place of the dead, I called out to you. The fact that some conclude that Jonah died is not far-fetched at all. Listen to what he went on to say. 
when my life was ebbing away. Okay, let me put that into plain English. When I was dying, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. I cried out to you from the place of the dead. When I was dying, I prayed to you. But with a song of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. It's quite plausible that Jonah died in there. I'm not saying he did. I don't know. It could be metaphor. It could. But he could have died in there. I mean, this is a fish, not a whale. Fish don't breathe air. There's no air inside of that fish for Jonah to breathe. So God kept him miraculously alive, or he let him die. The ramifications of that are quite profound. We'll look at them in a minute. But he said, uh, salvation comes from the Lord. So he said, I was in the place of the dead. While I was dying, I prayed to you, and you saved me. You delivered me. He specifically said, salvation comes from the Lord. The Hebrew word for salvation is the same word translates as Jesus in English. Jesus comes from the Lord. It's like a play on words for those who know how to look for it. I told you Jonah's mentioned three times in the Bible. Second Kings, the book of Jonah, and the next place he's mentioned, Jesus talks about him. Here's what Jesus says about Jonah. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just like Jonah was in there, I'll be in there. He was in a fish, I'll be in the dirt. Yeshua, Jesus, died and was resurrected. Did Jonah die and get resurrected? Maybe. Don't think that takes from Jesus' miraculous resurrection. It doesn't. Others have resurrected in the Bible also. Jesus resurrected Lazarus, for example. So coming back from the dead doesn't take from the miracle of Jesus but it certainly adds to the type and antitype, doesn't it? If Jonah actually was in there for three days, died, and God brought him back to life as a type of what Jesus was going to do in the future. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, the belly of the earth. Then he goes on to say, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now a greater than Jonah is here. Jonah, the errant Jewish prophet who disobeyed God and ran away, who God said, you're going to do what I said, and sent him back, and he went to Nineveh, and the people repented. Now we've got Jesus himself in the heart of Israel preaching the gospel, and they are rejecting him. That's not looking so good. I thought Jonah was looking bad. Now it's the entire generation looking bad. I asked myself, why did God send Jonah? Couldn't he find somebody who would obey him? Well, I don't know the answer to that. The answer might have been no. But the answer also might have been yes. But he wanted Jonah anyway. God doesn't usually just bless once. It's like a shower of blessing. It's like a landmine that just scatters blessing everywhere. So he calls Jonah who disobeys, and because of that, a whole ship full of pagans get saved. 
Then he sends him off to Assyria, and the entire city repents. Maybe I shouldn't say saved, just repents and knows about God. Blessing is spreading. Jonah's being the tool of God's blessing to many people. He can be blessed himself if he wants to be, but he's stubborn. He's a hater. So here's how it went down. As Jonah started into the city on the first day's journey, he proclaimed the message, 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God. That's it? That's all you got to say? And they'll come to God? And Jesus himself comes to Israel? Nobody listens? Wow! Talk about stiff-necked and stubborn. By the way, I don't want it to sound like the Jewish people are worse than any other people. Look to your left and your right. Look at the empty seats. Tucson's not full of Jewish people rejecting God right now. It's full of Gentile people rejecting God right now. And our church isn't the only one that's got room. All right, so I'm telling you what was going on there and then, but I don't want you to think, oh, the Jewish people are more stubborn than everybody else. No, they're not. They're like everybody else. They're like a microcosm of everybody else. Jesus was rejected by the Jewish leadership. He was also rejected by the Roman leadership, right? And it was the Romans who ended up crucifying him. So I don't want you to think I'm being prejudiced one way or the other. So he goes there and he says, 40 days more, Nineveh will be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. From the greatest to the least important of them, they put on sackcloth, a fast. They stopped eating. When the message reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, removed his royal garments, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in ashes. This is what people did who are in the greatest form of grief, mourning, and contrition. If you want to show somebody you're really serious, stop eating, put on nasty clothes, and sit in the dirt, in ashes. That's some serious humility. This was the king of Assyria, the most mighty emperor on the planet, and he was vicious. I can't even picture our gentle president doing this. Wish he would. And then whoever takes his place next time, the same. We need more leadership repenting before God. This is a, this miracle, there's the miracle in the story. Heck with the fish. We just see the capital of the Assyrians, the whole capital, repenting before God. This is amazing. Then he had this proclamation published throughout Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, no man or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything, graze or drink water. They lived in the desert too. You're not even going to drink water. Instead, let both man and animal clothe themselves with sackcloth and cry out to God forcefully. Let every person turn from his evil ways and from his tendency to do violence. Who knows? But God may relent. He may have compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we're not exterminated. They didn't even know they were going to be spared. But they were going to repent and put the best face on it they could and beg God to spare them. They believed Jonah. They believed in God. That is a great story of faith. God took note of what they did that they turned from their evil ways, God relented concerning the trouble about which he had warned them, and he did not carry it out. When man repents, 
God relents. You just see that throughout the entire Bible. God's ready to destroy even a wicked kingdom, but if they repent, God will relent. He'll put off the judgment. He won't do it. God is so gracious that way, so forgiving, and that's how he wants us to be. Even if people hurt you bad, if they seriously repent, and by the way, seriously, you know, somebody causes you serious grief and drama and comes up and says, oh, man, I'm sorry. No. But they come before you practically crying and telling you how stupid they were, and they're so sorry. You've got to forgive them. you just got to. I can't even imagine somebody not being willing to. What kind of heart would it take not to break over somebody else's grief? And that's how God was. He just saw there they were broken, and he was like, that's, that's what I'm talking about. That's what we need. So the prophet Jonah runs from God, the Jewish prophet, while the pagan mariners come to God. Jonah is sent to Nineveh to preach repentance. After he's done, he goes out and sits on a hill and watches to see if they're going to be destroyed or not. And when they repent and God doesn't destroy them, Jonah gets mad at God. And he asks God to just kill him. And God's like, really? All those people in there, you just want me to kill them? And the story ends like that. We have no indication that Jonah's heart ever changed in this story. No indication that he ever learned the lesson that the mariners learned, that the Assyrians learned. But as a Jewish guy looking back at this story, I get it. God's making the Gentiles look good, not the Jews. God's not a respecter of persons. There's plenty of blame to go around and plenty of blessing to go around. And this is a very not-so-subtle story to help Gentiles and Jews know that we all need to repent in sackcloth and ashes and come before God. So, I want to know. You don't have to raise your hands. I want you to think, though. Who do you identify with in this story? If you put yourself into the story, are you one of the mariners? One of the people who didn't know about God, but you learned about God and chose to follow him? Are you like Jonah, who knows all about God, but doesn't really care what God has to tell you to do? You're not going to do it? Are you like uh, Israel, who is wicked and experiencing grace, but non-responsive? Or are you like Nineveh, wicked, deserving judgment, but repentant? Who do you identify with? There's many lessons in this book. I told you at the very beginning we shouldn't compare ourselves with other people because that's just an exercise in futility. We always end up looking better than we are. In this story, there was some of that going on with Jonah, I think. Those who he perceived to be the good guys, Israel, were indeed bad guys. And those he perceived to be bad guys were also bad guys. It wasn't good versus bad. It wasn't bad versus worse. It was bad and bad. That's it. They're just bad. God wants everybody to repent. We saw in here that Jonah said, salvation comes from the Lord. And then the very next person who spoke about Jonah was Jesus, speaking about how he was going to save the world by dying for their sins, our sins. You know that famous passage of Scripture, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Well, I gave you four options. Jonah, do you identify with him? Israel, do you identify with them? The Mariners or the Assyrians? Those are four bad options. <laughs> when I first thought on the story, I thought, you know what? I'll go with the Mariners. Didn't know about God when I was younger. I learned about him. I repented. I became a God follower because I'm just too arrogant to say I'm an Assyrian. <laughs> Wasn't that bad comparing myself with them, you know? <laughs> but then I thought about it, and I don't want you guys to go home with those four options because I believe there's a fifth option. The prophet who wasn't mentioned in the book, the one who does obey God. How about we be that one? Okay, maybe we're not literally prophets, but we are God followers, and we have the option day in and day out to do God's will or not. We can follow God. We can serve God or not. So you have the option. After today, you're going to go home and be Jonah, knowing what God wants you to do and not doing it, Serving God with your time, your talents, and your treasures. Giving up the gossiping, giving up the slander. You can do that or not. Or you could be Israel, being blessed by God, but not even thanking him for it, not even appreciating it. You have the power to decide who in the story you are. And it's my prayer that you'd be the fifth, the prophet who's not mentioned in the book, who's mentioned in all the other books, the prophets that obey God. Please join me in prayer. Oh, Lord God, thank you so much for the lesson of Jonah. May we learn it in the depths of our being. May we be humble and not judgmental and asking you to forgive us. May we be righteous, obedient people, willing to do your work, even when it's uncomfortable to do it. Help us to be selfless and forgiving and kind, to give of our time to serve you to give of our talents to serve you. And may we not have our pocketbook so tightly clutched in our hands that we're not willing to give of that to serve you too. Show us the way. Give us the power to follow you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.